text tonight is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. I'll read verses 20 and 21. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. He says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Probably the greatest and most important paradox known to humanity is the cross. And here, Paul is amplifying that theme by saying, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Well, how is a paradox defined? Webster says it's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained proves to be well-founded or true. Another definition, put it this way, it's a self-contradictory statement, a statement that despite apparently valid reasoning from true premises leads to a self-contradictory or logical, unacceptable conclusion. What it means is to the human mind, it simply doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Now, there are many paradoxical statements that we might use in, in everyday life, one such as the more you fail the more likely you are to succeed. And probably the most or greatest referenced example of, of this is Abraham Lincoln. He lost his job in 1832. He was defeated for the state legislature in 1832. I read he had a nervous breakdown in 1836. He was defeated for speaker in 1838. He was defeated for the nomination of Congress in 1843. He lost the nomination in 1848. He was rejected for land officer in 1849. He was defeated for the U.S. Senate in 1854. He was defeated for the nomination for vice president in 1856. He was defeated for U.S. Senate in 1858. Yet he was elected president in 1860, likely as the greatest president in history. The more you fail, the more likely you are to succeed. How about this one? The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. We certainly find that to be true in God's word. And today, people, I think, are more connected than ever. I asked uh, the Sunday school class this morning, if you receive a text, how soon do you expect to get a response? There were varying views. Some say they're friends. It could be days. Some say if it's someone's close, maybe it's that day or within an hour. Yet people feel more isolated today, perhaps, than ever. How about this one? The more something scares you, the more you should probably try it. I thought about not reading that one. The more you try to argue with someone, the less likely we are to convince them of your view. And even when it comes to Christian apologetics, if you get in an argument with, with somebody, most likely you're not going to convince them. It's probably fruitless. Yet we do take a stand as Christians on what we believe and what we know to be true. 
In the famous World War II novel by Joseph Heller, I read that this phrase, Catch-22, was invented. And how it takes place in this novel, there was a pilot named Eusarian, and he was trying to be relieved of his military duty by asking for a psychiatric evaluation. He went to the doctor and he said, I want to be declared insane so I don't have to fly into battle. And I read that upon evaluation, the doctor tells him that anybody trying to fly into combat cannot be insane. The insane thing to do is to want to fly into battle. So it was the opposite of what she wanted. And so the doctor said, I can't declare you to be insane. I'm not sure if this is a paradox. This is something that I've struggled with. If I take a, a ball and I drop it to the ground, at some point it's going to reach halfway there. It's math. You divide by two, right? And then if it gets halfway there, at some point it's going to reach halfway there again. You divide it by two again, and you can do that over and over. And the paradox is, mathematically speaking, that ball never hits the ground because you can always divide it by two. Yet I know it does. I've thought about that and worried about that and never figured that out. But we know that the gospel is richly full of what we would say on the surface to the human mind to be is a complete contradiction. But when we experience the cross, when we experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find them to be truer than true. Paul said to the church at Corinth, therefore I take pleasures in infirmities, in approaches, this is 2 Corinthians 12.10, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. That doesn't make sense to the human mind, yet it does to the heart that's been regenerated. In Philippians 3.7, he says, or excuse me, Mark 3.35, he says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And then to the church at Corinth, again, this was earlier in the first letter. Paul rattles off a whole list. Excuse me, this is also in the second letter of what might be to our minds a contradiction he says as unknown and yet well known as and, as dying and behold we live as chastened and not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making rich as having nothing and yet possessing all things how can all of these things be true how can they ring true to our hearts because we are crucified with Christ nevertheless we live it's because Jesus Christ, he was dead, yet he's alive forevermore. He always was alive, yet there was a point in time when that bond between him and the Father was broken. He went to the cross. The sacrifice was completed. It was done. And he is a man on the right hand of God right now in heaven, alive forevermore. I am crucified or dead with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
The plan of salvation is perfect. The plan of salvation was and is still being perfectly fulfilled. When Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, he didn't come to be human just for a moment in time or for 33 years. He came to be humanity forever. At the age of 33, when he orchestrated the events to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, all four Gospels gives an account of this. It was re- He was representing himself as the Messiah, the King to the people. Just as it, would, it was predicted in Zechariah 9.9. And the very day to the day was prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9.25. The children of Israel missed it. The people missed that fulfillment. And and because of this, we find the Lord weeping over Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 41, at the triumphal entry, it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Usually we think of the account when Jesus wept. This is another time where he beheld Jerusalem because he was fulfilling the day that Daniel was told in which he would ride on a donkey in Jerusalem. It says in verse 42, saying, If thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. It was a triumphal day, yet it was a very sad day. A day in which they sang, sang Hosanna, yet it was a day in which they prepared to crucify him, where their voices would change and say, crucify him. We know this was on the 10th day of Nisan on the Jewish calendar, and we know this would have been the exact same day to the day that each household would have been going out to choose a lamb or a goat without blemish to be the sacrifice for their household at Passover. It would have been four evenings later that the Lord sat down with his disciples at the Last Supper or the Last Seder. And communion, we know, was instituted. The bread and the grape juice representing the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that would be broken. We know that according to what was instituted at at the first Passover, there were four cups that were given. The cup of bringing them out, the cup of deliverance, the cup that will redeem you. But we notice that the fourth cup Jesus did not drink of yet, and that's because there's a promise for you and me. In Matthew 26, 29, he says, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's a promise. That's a hope for you and me. The Lord left the fourth cup out. That's why we can say that the plan of salvation is continuing to be fulfilled. The sacrifice was complete, but the consummation of all things will be fulfilled soon one day. God's plan is perfect. Soon Jesus had predicted that Judas would betray him. John 13, verse 27, it says, And after the sop, Satan entered into him, that is Judas. And Jesus said, Jesus saith unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. We know that the elders, the people, they did not want to take Jesus on the feast day. There was probably one to two million visitors in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was over this week. 
This was not their plan, but the Lord knew this was God's plan. And so Jesus pushes the, the issue and says to Judas, do it quickly. And as we read through the gospel accounts, we find that the Lord went through six trials. And I think it's no wonder that it was six trials, the number of man, not the number of completion. He had six Jewish trials, six Gentile trials. He stood before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin through the night. We can read in the scripture. And then early that morning, he stood before Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod, and Herod back to Pilate for his sixth and final trial. And if you read through the Gospels, there was at least seven times that people declared Christ to be innocent. You see, they were supposed to inspect the sacrifice and make sure it was perfect. As they were their household sacrifice. As the high priest was for the sacrifice for the people, they were inspecting Jesus. Judas said in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Herod said, lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him, declaring his innocence. The wife of Pilate said, have thou nothing to do with that just man? The thief on the cross, we know, said, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss, declaring he was innocent. And the Roman centurion said, certainly this was a righteous man. He's innocent. And we find in Matthew 27 where the guards, a group of guards with the centurion said, truly, this was the son of God, the perfect sacrifice, the innocent sacrifice for the sin of the people. Even the Jewish trials that he went through, if you read through the scripture and through the old law, they were done illegally. They broke many of the laws as they brought Jesus before them to declare that he should be sacrificed on Calvary. Mark 15:25 records that it was the third hour of the day that Jesus hung on the cross. We know that was 9 a.m. on Passover, the 14th of Nisan. He had ridden in on a donkey on the 10th. Matthew says that it was the sixth hour, so it would have been noon where darkness fell across the earth. And the Bible says also in Matthew's account, chapter 27, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if I understand correctly, this is the only time the Lord does not refer to God as his father. Because there was a broken union there because of the sins of the world that were on Jesus. And in verse 50, this was again the ninth hour when Jesus, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, his spirit, up to the Father. This was the very hour, because this was the time of the evening sacrifice, that on the temple mount... The high priest would have been offering the Passover lamb for the people. We know at that time there would have been thousands of sacrifices for the households brought to the temple mount. But at that hour, the final sacrifice for the people was given. In fact, they were probably singing or chanting Psalm 118 as the Lord was laid on the cross, which said, God is the Lord, which hath showed us light, bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. As they laid that lamb for the people on Golgotha at the same time, Christ was being bound to the altar, the cross. 
He says in verse 28 of that same psalm, Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Verse 29, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. They didn't know that they should be praising God for Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. They missed it. 700 years prior, the psalmist had declared exactly what would happen at Calvary. We know that crucifixion had not even been invented yet. This is in the 22nd Psalm, and really it's the Lord speaking in the first voice we could say about being on the cross. He says, my strength is dried up like a posture. This is verse 15. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Verse 16. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. The psalmist wouldn't have even probably understood what he was writing when he was predicting the words of Jesus Christ hundreds of years in advance on the cross. God's plan is perfect. Our text provides that paradox for us. He laid in the tomb for three days and three nights. And because of Christ, we can say, and Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm dead, but I'm alive. He goes on to say, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. You see, this is the reality of the resurrection. It's one thing to say it, to teach it, to think about it, but yet it's so much more to experience it. New life in Christ. Experiencing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know even in secular history, a body was not found. It would have been documented. His death was the most documented death in the history of humanity. But the way we know the resurrection to be true is what you have experienced and what I have experienced in my heart and in my life. We must get a taste and a touch of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to experience it in our own hearts. We need to have a day and a time and a place when we pass from spiritual death unto spiritual life. We were dead, but we were made alive. We were in sin, but we were, be, we were given new life. We were in darkness, but we were made into the children of light. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead three days and three nights later, as he predicted on the 17th of Nisan. I believe it was in the text this morning where it speaks of him being the first fruits. That would have been the feast of first fruits. He is our feast. He fulfills that, that feast of first fruits by being our first fruits from the dead. Genesis 8.4 says, And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventh day of the month. That's the same exact day. Thousands of years in advance, in anticipation of what Christ would do when he rose from the dead, the new earth, we might say, at the time of Noah, when God started over in advance, was looking forward to when Jesus would give you and me new birth in him, new life in him, victory in Jesus. He goes on to say in our text, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave it all. As the psalmist said, he poured out his soul unto death. And in Galatians 2, verse 21, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. 
That word frustrate means to, to set it aside, to neutralize it, to violate it, to cast it off, to disannul, to despise, to bring to naught, or to reject. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in, in vain. I think the challenge is, what are you doing with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What am I doing with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God? What have we done with the message of eternal life? What have we done with the message of God's grace? I read that the book of Galatians or heard the book of Galatians was used much for the Reformation because it focuses on grace. Martin Luther apparently loved this book. It focuses on not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by grace we are saved. Billy Graham gave a message in 1985. It's, it's a well-documented message in Hartford, Connecticut concerning the cross. He said there are four dimensions to the cross, and perhaps he's likened it to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I believe it's chapter 3, where he talks about the four dimensions of the love of God. But I'm paraphrasing, but Billy Graham put it like this. He says, first of all, there's the breadth of the cross. And that means that the cross extends to all humanity, all nations, all ethnic groups, any person on earth is represented by the availability of the breadth of the cross. Then he goes on to say the length of the cross. It has no measure, the length and the love of Christ. It's everlasting. It was before the foundation of the world. It's outside of time. It's eternal. That's the length of the cross. He says the height of the cross. And I liked how he put it that it extends to the throne of God. When we look up into the sky, we see the clouds, we see the stars, we see the planets, and we see the telescopes that can look further and further into space, yet the cross extends beyond all of that, the height of the cross. And he's, then he says the depth of the cross, the fourth dimension that Billy Graham refers to, speaking that it does not matter how far in sin and shame you have gone. You may have gone to the very gates of hell, but the cross extends to that depth tonight. What will we do with the cross? Because of the resurrection, we have hope. But I don't know what your background is. You may be listening in and the Lord is speaking to your heart and a lot of times I think the enemy would tell us you're a lost cause. Maybe you're in a place of plain salvation and the enemy is telling you it will never work. I'm here to tell you tonight that the cross and its breadth, its length, its height and its depth is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for me. Jesus paid it all. He went to a cross, but he's got victory over death, hell, and the grave. What will we do with the grace of God? And by grace we are saved, the scripture says, and by grace we are sanctified. And it's because of God's grace, the plan of salvation will be completely completed when he returns for his bride. When he catches us up, he turns back to the house of Israel, and one day we will live with him for all eternity. But what will we do at the cross tonight? We have a day of salvation tonight. The scripture speaks of that. What will you do with the challenge of the cross? If you're not saved... We want to encourage you, ask the Lord for forgiveness. Christ will save you. You will be 
able to point back to a day and a time. Not a, I knew about it. You could even say, I love God's word, but have you experienced the cross? Have you experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your heart? That's why we have these meetings. That's why we have these services. That's why we have an altar call. We know that the Lord is calling. The Lord is speaking. We just pray, turn your life over to the Lord. Christ will save you. He will give you victory. He will confirm his resurrection in your heart. The song is 349. Let's come out and pray.